Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosophy, the one true podcast where we have been breaking creationists since January of 2009. Matt, I think we have short-circuited Kirk Hastings. I think so. I think he's uh, he's starting to go off the deep end. His fuse box is blown. (laughs) His Uh, ham sandwich has no cheese. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Uh, So... As you may be aware, for the past several podcasts, uh, we've been reviewing Kirk Hastings' book, What is Truth? Um, Now, I've left an Amazon review on it. Um, It it is currently the most helpful review. (laughs) So, uh, he replied to my review. He says, Chuck, your review is just as ignorant and hate-filled as your website is. Guess I'll be helpful again here and mention that there now happens to be a Facebook page that specifically questions irreligiosity's intellectually dishonest tactics. Like all the fake reviews you've had your mindless minions post here recently in order to artificially lower the ratings of my book. Now, Kirk... Hey! You're... <laughs> I'm not <laughs> a minion. <laughs> <laughs> I have not instructed anyone to review your book on Amazon, Kirk. I don't know where you're getting that. Second of all, your book had one review in the two years that it's been published. That was a five-star review by a personal friend of yours. I think that would be artificially inflated, wouldn't you say, Matt, that five stars? What we're doing is we're just bringing that down to an accurate rating. We're almost there. You still have two stars, Kirk. Right. Now we have a much larger sample size. (laughs) No, larger sample size, more accuracy. Some semblance of accuracy. Uh, Kirk goes on, incidentally, if if you're so smart, when are you going to write a book giving us your evidence for atheism? What there is of it. Yeah, Chuck. I don't know. Maybe I will write a book. (laughs) Just to cheese Kirk Hastings off. You know, I'm on Kirk's side on this one. (laughs) (laughs) When am I going to write a book? Seriously. By Jehoshaphat. I was doing the math, by the way. Um, His book technically should only be rated 1.8 stars. (laughs) Um, so, anyway, Kirk Kirk mentions that there now happens to be a Facebook page that just happens to be run by Kirk Hastings. <laughs> so Kirk Hastings has made a Facebook page that's it's called the Question Irreligiosophy Project on Facebook. It's It's got his own comic. Yes, but I like his comics, though. They're, <laughs> you they're are, funny. You are fired. <laughs> You're, not because you like his comics, but because you have a terrible sense of humor. <laughs> Just wait until you read some. <laughs> now, now, in addition to his comics, um, Kirk has quite a few uh, posts on here, um, such as the following. Chuck, you and the rest of your brain-dead minions keep repeating the same ignorant statements over and over again. And you think you're smart because of that. <laughs> there is plenty <laughs> of proof that there is a god. At least as much proof as you claim to have that there isn't. And probably more, he says in parentheses. <laughs> That's a pretty tentative conclusion, Kirk. <laughs> At least My as much. My piece of them is just as valid as yours. Maybe. Maybe or even more so. More so. <laughs> um, by the way, right after that post, uh, okay, Andy is the first to be banned from this page for his bigoted, condescending remarks. And the fact that his homepage says he is on Facebook, quote, to annoy everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, um, way to go, Andy. I'm going to go pour out a 40 on the curb for him. I think... I don't know what that means. Actually, Andy, I believe, before he was banned and all of his posts were removed, posted that he had a huge man crush on me. So that's probably what, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Oh, 
Minion. Hello. <laughs> oh, good All lord. Right. Um, I would like to read one more post, Matt. Um, this is from Kirk Hastings. Chuck, you are one of the most dishonest, disingenuous... Be- <laughs> <laughs> I am dishonest and a disingenuous, man. People I have ever encountered. Do you really think taking specific verses out of the Bible and using them completely out of context makes you an intellectual? Or are you just stupid? <laughs> Frankly, I'm not willing to give you that excuse. Oh, Kirk Hastings called me smart. Wait a second. Did he? He did. He did. It's like one of those roundabout ways of getting Thank around. Thank you, Kurt. However, you do just keep showing how ignorant of true Bible scholarship you really are with simple crap like this. Whew. I love you too, Kirk. I'm going to send him a card. A nice one. <laughs> now, Matt, I think we owe it to our listeners to dramatize the first two comics uh, that Kirk Hastings has done. We do indeed. This first comic is actually my probably my favorite. It is entitled Irreligiosophy, number one. There's a caption underneath that says, the atheists meet each other for the first time. Now, apparently Layton is on the left. He's got some blue pants, spiky hair, bags under his eyes. I'm on the right. I got a little button-up shirt, green pants. My hands are always in my pocket. I don't think my hands make an appearance throughout the entire comic strip. You're always playing with yourself. I am, yeah. I'm engaged in a 36-strip-long game of pocket pool. And there's always like a couple of jelly beans strewn around the floor. Because <laughs> atheists can't clean up around themselves. <laughs> dirty, you're dirty too. All right, Matt, uh, would you play the part of Leighton for this comic? I shall play the part of Leighton. I shall be playing the part of Leighton. Hold on, let me get in character. <clears throat> hello, hello. I don't have a low voice. Let, let me help you out here, Matt. Your your motivation is that you are an angry atheist, bitter and hateful toward God and everyone religious. <clears throat> All right, I'm there. All right, let's begin. Hi, I'm a rebel without a cause. No kidding, me too. Let's say we be buddies and rebel against everything together. Cool. To begin with, I think you're the stupidest looking... I don't know what that is. It's just a bunch of Cuber language. How do you say that? Pound sign at asterisk exclamation percent. (laughs) I think you're the stupidest looking... I've ever seen... Probably it was ass hat. <laughs> that was the punchline. So ends the first comic from Kirk Hastings. And scene. Moving on to the second, which uh, is nearly identical. Let's start a website and criticize everything. I think we should narrow it down to something more specific. How about religion? Great! That should offend just about everybody. <laughs> there's actually no there's no joke in there I think there should be a fifth panel it must have been cut off alright let's move on moving on um, I did want to go over some Amazon reviews you know Matt before we um, reviewed this on our podcast Kirk Hastings had one uh, review his book had been up for two years it was a five star review uh, let me let me read this to you it's a must read book uh, by Doris J. Pope, January 20th, 2011. It's a five-star review. 
I read this book when it first came out because the author is an old friend of mine. That's <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so, Kirk now has 17 one-star reviews, five five-star reviews, including one by himself, <laughs> and uh, one four-star review. I believe they're all his personal friends. One Man Search for Truth, Keith Kendricks. He's uh, Kirk's soulmate on Evidence for Faith. Utterly Great by Quid Est Veritas. Uh, let's see. He enjoyed its five-star review. Now, I am also a personal friend of the author. <laughs> a personal account of spiritual and intellectual growth by Robert Sorensen, who has to be a friend of his because he has a site called Piltdown Superman. And I think on his Facebook page he posted a screed from... Kirk Hastings, like three questions that the Darwinist must answer. Unfortunately, he got a bunch of negative replies on that and deleted it. <laughs> uh, a must-read book. I read that for you. Honest Readers, Please Note by Kirk Hastings. Uh, I would like to point out that many of the reviews posted here recently about my book have been put there by a coordinated group of disgruntled atheists at irreligiosophy.com, a website dedicated not to reason, logic, or truth, but to insulting and putting down anyone who believes in God. I take exception to that. <laughs> I mean, disgruntled, sure, but coordinated? <laughs> uh, we have some, don't be fooled by this blatant two-faced hypocrisy. I thought that was great. Yes. So essentially, they're they're all from his uh, best friends. The four star review. Uh, one of his friends couldn't bring herself to uh, give him a five star review. <laughs> Wendy, Wendy Cassiopo. I could be typing this note, and never have seen the book nor read it. But the fact is, that I've read the book and know the author personally. That's a common theme throughout uh, the good reviews. That they know personally, yeah. Let, let's read the uh, some of the bad reviews. What do you say? That sounds great. I got mine up there. Let's see. Uh, mind me, same old debunked arguments. Hastings demonstrates is incapable of using Google. <laughs> <laughs> Terrell K., I've read worse, but I can't remember when. Uh, Saint Alifaba contains no actual truth, just lies and delusion. The author displays absolutely no concept of science, critical thinking, and has no understanding of what the second law of thermodynamics even means. That was so good, I think Amazon spotlighted that. It's like in a, one of the sentences that's right next to his review. Oh, really? <laughs> Actually, Billy Batson by Billy Batson. You remember when uh, Kirk Hastings' sock puppetist has sent us an email under Grant Gardner? Oh, that's right. This is like a... Um, uh, he has rewritten that email <laughs> as a review to Kirk's book. <laughs> <laughs> Lately, I've been reading material by Chuck, an award-nominated investigative podcaster. <laughs> that's right. Uh, what was that? It was the Webbies or something, right? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I can't remember. Podcast award, something like that. Yeah. Uh, Glib Lord, I can barely acknowledge it as a book. <laughs> <laughs> we need a zero star option by Dr. Flebus. Christine Tripp, this book made me want to get a lobotomy. I love it. Uh, these are fantastic. Anyway, I wanted to cover some of those because they're um, somewhat hilarious. They are hilarious. But it's just a, what did he say? It's a coordinated attack. Who are all these disgruntled atheists we are coordinating with? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Clearly, we're angry that Kirk Hastings has revealed the truth, and our shallow worldview has been shattered utterly. Oh, man. What is truth? Kirk don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good review. All right, shall we move on? Part 10, the case for the reliability of the Bible? Yes, let's move on. Dear God, Matt, we're only on part 10. <laughs> 
<laughs> Only part 10. Holy crap, Chuck. Do you know that that is barely... That's not even halfway through the book. That is page 79 of officially 197 pages. Oh, my God. Uh, this part's a little more interesting, though, didn't you think, than the Kirk's bumbling attempts at science? Yes, although I don't know if you've noticed it, but I think he's starting to get a little more ranty now. Like, before, he there was, like, like kind of a layer of, like... Uh, of honesty, if you would, you know, of true scientific discourse, even though it was terrible. There was at least a pretense <laughs> of objectivity. Like that's was, that's he it. He was trying to maintain a, a sort of illusion that he was objective, and he he drops that definitely from here on out. Yeah, the later on with the with inherit the wind part stuff gets really good. I love it. <laughs> he starts whining a little bit. Hey Chuck. Yeah. Did you know that it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference? Yeah, I was I just flipped over to the um, footnotes on that one, and that is by Nelson Gluck from 1959. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the more recent. Yeah, some some of these statements are from like 1938. Uh, we've had a lot of archaeology, and then and actually, curiously, um, from the 50s onward, pretty much. Uh, they reversed. It was looking pretty good for the Bible up until the 50s. After that, uh, finding after finding, I think, kind of destroyed the uh, uh, picture of the Bible as reliable. Right. You so, get at that in here, though, where uh, they'll mention some guy, and then in, in parentheses they'll say, one of the greatest archaeolog- archaeologists ever, or something like that. Right. Yeah. And then you look at it, so like 1912. And you're <laughs> yeah, he does that quite a bit, too. I don't know if we've mentioned it before, but um, for all these Christians that he says, he never notes that they're Christians. Did you notice that? It's never a Christian so-and-so. It's always noted archaeologist or <laughs> famed scientist, blah, blah, blah. But if they're on the flip side, it's always ardent atheist or mean Darwinist or something like that. Right. Uh, so um, he says... Uh, <laughs> Now that we have all but eliminated the idea of Darwinian biological evolution as a rational or scientific explanation for how the universe came about, where does that leave us in trying to understand where we came from? <laughs> so, you know, like, like we said before, before half the book, he's utterly destroyed a foundational theory of biology. That's impressive. Right, that is impressive. So he's got the false dichotomy. It's either evolution or supernatural creation since we've pretty much eliminated organic evolution at this point all we have left is the other alternative we win by default (laughs) (laughs) I would like to thank Kirk for gathering all of the stupid arguments for Christianity in one convenient place though that was very nice of him yes Uh, let's see he says there is another place we can look Matt the Bible (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think of that. Uh, of course, after Kirk's 30-year search for truth, very conveniently, it was right in his backyard all along. Oh, man. The very first sentence in it states, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Perhaps, perhaps <laughs> this could be the higher intelligence we are looking for. After all, the Bible has been around for a very long time. <laughs> there you have it. I am sold. How about the uh, Enuma Elish, whose first sentence is this, Matt? When on high, heaven was not named, and the earth beneath did not yet bear a name. And the primeval Apsu, who begat them, and Chaos Tiamat, the mother of them both, 
Their waters were mingled together, and no field was formed, no marsh was to be seen. When of the gods none had been called into being, and none bore a name, and no destinies were ordained. Then were created the gods in the midst of heaven. Lamu and Lahamu were called into being. Perhaps that's the higher intelligence we're looking for. Ah, that's just mythology. The Enuma Elish has been around for a very long time, Matt. <laughs> yeah, but was it... Um... I don't recall anybody ever, like, personally speaking the Tiamat. Oh, that didn't, yeah. You got me. <laughs> <laughs> Am I jumping ahead? Does that come up later? Or do we already no. cover that? <laughs> no, I think we got it. Uh, he says, why, why the Bible in particular? Well, why not the Koran or some other scripture, right? Um, his answer, not all scriptures are created equal. That's a false idea foisted upon us by the liberal elite media. Mm -hmm. He's even got a quote from Professor M. Monterio Williams, a former Bowdoin professor of Sanskrit. Uh, I will read this to you, Matt. Pile them, if you will, on the left side of your study table, but place your own Holy Bible on the right side. This guy's so Christian, <laughs> he can't even say Bible without putting Holy right. in front of it. But place your own Holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone, and with a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between it and the so-called sacred books of the East which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever. A veritable gulf which cannot be bridged over by any science of religious thought. <laughs> <laughs> science of religious thought? Oh my God. This is a book from a book called All About the Bible. Well, you know, that settled, some, some professor of Sanskrit has uh, said that the Holy Bible is much better than the other Eastern scriptures. So there you go. There you have it. Yeah, you can't let them touch. You have to have the gap between them, otherwise they burst into flame, I think. A wide gap. <laughs> a wide gap. Next, he gives us an overview of the Old Testament, and he, he says that the first five books of, of Genesis, first five books of the Old Testament, were all written by Moses. <laughs> <laughs> the first one, too? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In the end of Deuteronomy, Matt, it narrates the death of Moses, his burial, and the mourning. It's impressive that uh, Moses wrote the following words from Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite of Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. Moses apparently uh, <laughs> is a ghost now, writing about himself in the third person. That was prophecy. <laughs> Which came true and also proves the Bible is correct. <laughs> Moses is kind of a dick. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. <laughs> yeah, he's still talking about himself. Nice. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. <laughs> what an he's asshole. About his penis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good lord. Men are so predictable. He believes, of course, that the Psalms were written by... King David, and Solomon apparently uh, wrote Ecclesiastes. That's a new one on me. You didn't know that? No. I found an error. Yeah? And Yeah. Well, it, I don't know if it's a true error or if it's just um, because we're not just reviewing the truthiness of his book, but also his writing, which really bugs me. You know, his writing is really confusing sometimes. Just It's just poor writing. You know what I mean? It's like a, a fifth grade book report. I know he says... The first five books of the Old Testament, all written by Moses, together compromise or comprise what the Jews call 
the Pentateuch, and then in parentheses he says, which means law or teaching. That's uh, not true. Right. Now, Pentateuch, Pent, you know, five, means yep. five books or scrolls. Yep. Um, I think what he means is the five first five books are comprised of the Torah, right? And Torah means teachings. Yeah. It contains the law, I suppose. I guess so. But that's uh, the kind pen, of stuff. Yeah, Pentateuch. He can't be bothered to look this stuff up, right? Right. Uh, so his next task is to show that today's copies of the Old Testament are reliable, the stuff that we have, right? And the process of copying these texts in ancient times was painstakingly accurate. He quotes a manuscript scholar from 1939. <laughs> when a manuscript had been copied with the exactitude prescribed by the Talmud and had been duly verified, it was accepted as authentic and regarded as being of equal value with any other copy. If all were equally correct, age gave no advantage to a manuscript. On the contrary, age was a positive disadvantage since a manuscript was liable to become defaced or damaged in the lapse of time. So the problem here, um, as any manuscript scholar should know, is that it's nearly impossible to copy any length of text without error. Right. Almost impossible. But they were really careful. They count the words and letters. Right. You can, you can get really good and, and, and really accurate, but it'll never be perfect. So... Uh, of course age gives value. He, he cites various rules that, as you mentioned, the Hebrew copyists used. There were rules that governed the kind of ink that could be used. I don't know why that matters. There were rules governing the spacing of words. The scribes were also prohibited from copying anything, even a single letter, from memory. <laughs> how, how do they enforce that? <laughs> <laughs> they got someone standing over their shoulder. Abraham. <laughs> Did you copy that from your brain? With a manuscript. Oh, Jesus. Lines and individual letters were all methodically counted. If a single mistake was found in any document, it was immediately discarded and or destroyed. How do you discard and destroy something? You burn it? <laughs> then you toss it? I guess? I don't know. Discarded and or destroyed. Uh, I suppose you can throw it away and then burn all the garbage. Of course, yes. these mechanisms are in place precisely because of the difficulty of copying lengths of text without error, right? I mean, the reason they have the rules is because it's so difficult. So, how do they do? He says they did extremely well, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls give us a handy experiment, because the, the earliest ancient copy we have for us is like a thousand years old. The sea, Dead Sea Scrolls date somewhere around 100, 150 B.C. Right. So, uh, Kirk quotes Gleason Archer. His qualifications he just gives is B.A., M.A., and Ph.D. from Harvard. <laughs> in what? Well, what are those degrees in? Kirk doesn't care. It's just a degree. <laughs> he quotes the guy as saying the Dead Sea Scrolls, quote, Pro proved to be word-for-word -word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. Wait and, uh, a second. They I, there were no errors. <laughs> they do not affect the message of revelation in the slightest. Whoa! Whoa! What the fuck? What does that mean? Is that some sort of scientific measuring stick we've got now? Message of revelation? What does that mean? Why is there a 5% error? Is Yahweh only 95% omnipotent? <laughs> what? And if they're chiefly obvious slips of the pen, what happened to all their fucking rules? How did they not find that? 
They didn't catch him. Somebody copied from memory. <laughs> How did they get through the, uh, the, the rigorous copying checks? <laughs> and, if, and if they got through, what obvious mistakes made through before uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls that those copyists made? Yeah. You know, they say um, there's another instance of him relying on the part of science that he likes, which is uh, they date the, the copy of Isaiah back to 125 B.C., yeah. And he accepts that. Yeah. But it, it doesn't say the method of dating, which I'm assuming is probably carbon dating. But how many times in creationist literature do you have to read about how carbon dating and radiometric dating is all flawed? You know? I believe they did a podcast, the Evans for Faith guys did a podcast where they mentioned the Shroud of Turin, and they're laughing about the radiometric dating and how, how screwed up and prone to error it is. But But here it's accepted, you know, absolutely accurate. Yes. Uh, next section is about the historical accuracy of the Old Testament, um, and I'm going to give you a little spoiler here, Matt. It's 100% accurate <laughs> in every detail. Oh, really? Even though God can only be asked to be 95% accurate, somehow the Old Testament is 100% accurate in historical well, detail. Well done. Kirk cites his own experts, who are always Christian, of course, seven times. Now, five of those seven date to the 70s or even older. Right? There's one right. like 98, 74, 42, 68, 30, 82, and 40. Uh, now, this is cutting edge research here, Matt. Okay. No contrary sources are cited. Obviously, the most prominent in recent times would be uh, the Bible Unearthed, Archaeology's New Vision of Ancient Israel and the Origin of Sacred Texts by two Jewish archaeologists, Israel Finkelstein and Neil Asher Silberman. Um, where they say that, you know, Exodus never occurs. We've got zero archaeological evidence of, of Exodus. You know, it's not among Kirk's sources. He never checks out stuff that's contrary to it. And, you know, he'd never find it because it's not f- listed in any creationist websites. Right. <laughs> it's way off his radar. All right, now we move to the New Testament. New Testament is comprised of 27 manuscripts, in parentheses he says, or, quote, books. <laughs> books. In case that was too big of a word for you. <laughs> uh, obviously, Kirk's audience has no fucking clue what a manuscript is. Well, that's three syllables, Chuck. Come on. <laughs> Written by about ten different authors between about 50 and 80 AD. So Kirk thinks, of course, everything in the New Testament was written well before the close of the first century. <laughs> um, ignoring all contrary scholarship, including Bart Ehrman, whose recent book, Forged, uh, places a bunch of that stuff in the second century. Um, he lists like the books. The to me. <laughs> Thinking, of course, that the four Gospels are um, biographical accounts of Jesus written by men who knew him personally, uh, which in the case of Luke and probably Mark isn't even true anyway. Luke never knew Jesus. He just knew Paul. Mark was an assistant of Peter. <sighs> anyway, um, this list is nice because Kirk inadvertently gives us an idea of how easy it is to make a copying error, Right. He says he says there are twenty seven books in the New Testament, but he only lists twenty five of them. <laughs> Hold on. Did you notice that? Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirty, four. Oh shit. <laughs> twenty five. Twenty five. Uh, he leaves out Titus in uh, Philemon. Um, or Philemon, however you say that. If he, he's obviously working from a list of the New Testament and he moves back and forth because after Second Timothy should come Titus and Philemon. But he skipped those two and moved directly to Hebrews. So... <laughs> What's in those books he doesn't want us to know? That's what I want. 
there you have including the numbers in the ands kirk list is less than 40 words and he manages to to leave out two of them <laughs> i want you to tell me again how easy it is to make copies of text kirk he didn't have somebody standing over his shoulder making sure he didn't do it from memory oh good lord all right so manuscript evidence of the new testament is the next section kirk admits there's no uh, original copies of the new testament manuscripts early copies were not made by scholars uh, but he believes that there are, quote, a number of compelling reasons that the documents in our possession are completely accurate to the originals. Do you know what the, that number of compelling reasons is, Matt? I do. It is 27,000, no, <laughs> 24,970. The number of compelling reasons, that's the number of manuscripts. Oh. <laughs> the number of, com- the number of compelling reasons that Kurt gives us is two. Oh. Number one, the extremely short amount of time between our earliest extant copies and the original documents. Now, Kirk believes everything in the New Testament right was finished by 80 A.D. So he dates the earliest surviving copy of a New Testament manuscript at 125 A.D. That That's a mere 45 years, man. It's impossible. Oh. Impossible. Well, that, be, that makes it extremely unlikely that major errors could have crept into the text. <laughs> impossible. I quote. <laughs> uh, the first problem... Is that manuscript copy that we have from 125 A.D. is not a manuscript at all. It's fragment P52. By the way, that dates from anywhere from 100 to 150, given the um, error bars on carbon dating. So it's fragment P52, a piece of papyrus that's only about 3.5 by 2.5 inches long. That, that, that's roughly the size of a credit card. It contains seven lines from the Gospel of John on the front and eight on the back. I'm going to read those lines to you, Matt. Okay. The Jews, for us, anyone, so that the woke signifying die and reem pi and say Jews. That's the front. The back, this I have been born, world so that I would, of the truth, said to him, and this the Jews, not one. Well, thanks, Kirk. That, that's quite <laughs> helpful. We, we know from these 15 lines that all of the New Testament is copied perfectly. Yes. Jesus H. Christ. Only 45 years from, from the gospel to that credit card size fragment that we have of John. Therefore, QED. Like the first copies of entire manuscripts that we have in the New Testament date to the 4th century. I think it's around 350. But, you know, the second problem with that idea is you know, that 45 years isn't long enough for errors to crop up or for legends to form. You always hear that, right? No way legends can form in, in just four decades. Right. Let's compare this to, to another ancient manuscript we have, uh, the histories of Herodotus, right? This is from Richard Carrier's article in the End of Christianity. Um, Herodotus reports some of these events uh, that have occurred during the Persian War. The Temple of Delphi magically defended itself with animated armaments, lightning bolts, and collapsing cliffs. The sacred olive trees of Athens, though burned by the Persians, grew a new shoot an arm's length in a single day. A miraculous flood tide wiped out an entire Persian contingent after they desecrated an image of Poseidon. A horse gave birth to a rabbit. <laughs> hey, Matt, that's proof of evolution. Oh, that's right! Horse gave birth to a rabbit, and a whole town witnessed a mass resurrection of cooked fish. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> the histories were written 40 to 50 years after the Persian War had ended. Hey, Kirk, that's, that's right where your number is, 45 years. Herodotus, by the way, tells us he interviewed eyewitnesses, just like Luke did. Sometimes he even names them. 
And uh, throughout the book, he's sometimes skeptical, like he'll question some accounts of the truth or he'll question the reliability of the witnesses. But those events he reported without any skeptical qualms whatsoever. So, so tell me again, Kirk, how 45 years is too short a time for errors or, or uh, memories to change, for example, or for um, large errors to, to creep up in the manuscript or you know, people to exaggerate things, just make shit up or, or stuff to just pop into existence, right? Uh, well, keep, go ahead. that doesn't make any sense, Chuck, because when I was working on my degree in Hastingsology, I learned that if you actually interview someone, it's pretty much the truth. <laughs> Eyewitness accounts are 100% reliable. That's right. That's why we've got four Gospels. <laughs> oh, why don't we just have one, then? Keep in mind, Matt, that uh, current scholarship says that John was written about 20 to 30 years after Mark. That's a time frame even shorter than Kirk's 45 years. During that time, though, Jesus was transformed from a secret Messiah who did miracles in private, told people to keep quiet about them, that's in Mark, to John, where Jesus is being uh, co-eternal with the Father, right? He creates the world and everything in it. Went about Galilee for not one year in Mark, but three years, performing miracles in the public, everywhere, with the specific purpose of providing evidence that he was the Messiah. He's telling everybody about it. 45 years, my ass. That's a legend springing up. That's plenty of time. The second <laughs> compelling reason Kirk gives to us, I quote, another reason we can be certain of the accuracy of the New Testament uh, documents we possess is the sheer number of documents <laughs> we possess. <laughs> and here's Matt, this is what you were telling me. This is the, he gives a chart, right? Right. Um, we've got Homer's The Iliad, Herodotus' The Histories, uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars, and the New Testament. According to Kirk, we have nearly 25,000 ancient copies of the New Testament extant today with a 99.5% accuracy rating. Again, where's that 0.5% anyway? Hey, come on, God's improving. He's <laughs> <laughs> better than the Old Testament. Right. He says, quote, There are so many copies of the New Testament in existence, it becomes a simple matter to weed out any mistakes or minor, minor scribal inaccuracy. So, Kirk's solution to a possible inaccuracy in one copy is simply to check out some of the others. I'm going to give the audience, and Kirk, because I'm sure he's listening, a moment to figure out for themselves what the problem with Kirk's thinking could possibly be. So, Kirk, Kirk himself admits, you know, like just a page back, that these manuscripts were not being copied by scholars, right, in the earliest times. There were no rigorous rules for checking accuracy, like there, there are in the Old Testament, right, from the right. priests. So the earliest decades are precisely the time, then, when um, big and small errors could be introduced into the manuscripts without anybody knowing. So these errors would then be passed on as reliable by later professional scribes, like in the second and third century, where you get people from Alexandria, professional scribes, um, and they want to copy it word for word. So, if you have an error right at the beginning, it doesn't matter how many copies you have of that manuscript. Uh, Kirk, if, if I write down a lie, and then I Xerox that lie 25,000 times, does that make it true? Yes. No, wait. Yes. Let me think about it. <laughs> According to Kirk, 
it does. And and again, remember here, Bart Ehrman's quote that there are more variations in our manuscripts of the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament itself. So I highly doubt that 99.5% accuracy. And in um, misquoting Jesus and Forge, he gives reasons why these things would be changed because of the doctrinal arguments that are going on at the time. You know, is Jesus truly God? Is he simply an adopted son of God? Was he, did he have a virgin birth? Did he bleed from every pore? All this stuff, you know, was being argued at the time, and, and so people would change these things to, to support, of course, their accuracy. And if it, those were carried forward then, we'd never know. Uh, anyway, moving on. He get the historical moving evidence. On. Historical evidence for the New Testament is next. Um, do you want to take a stab at what the historical evidence, what the accuracy rating on that? I'm going to say I've seen an upward trend. I think we can make 99.8. <laughs> the historical evidence supporting the New Testament is as overwhelming as the manuscript evidence, um, which, you know, apparently means not at all. <laughs> <laughs> He cites two experts to support this, one from 1960 and the other from 1938. <laughs> oh, good Lord. He, he even cites, wait for it, Matt. Yes? The New Testament itself to support the New Testament's historical accuracy. Well, that's not circular at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's got, yeah. he's got my man William Albright, though. What does William Albright say? Oh, he says the excessive skepticism shown shown toward the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th centuries, certain phases of which still appear periodically, has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details. That means you can't number them. <laughs> That's just and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. Yeah, um, that's from 1960. And that that may actually be an accurate, although probably exaggerated, uh, claim for 1960. But um, as the subsequent decades would show, uh, things pretty much fall apart. Uh, yeah, he, he in an argument about the historical evidence for the New Testament, he cites scripture. <laughs> that's just fucking unbelievable. Uh, the first scripture he cites is, quote, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now that's from Second Peter 1.16, which, by the way, is nearly universally considered a pseudonymous work, a forgery. From Bible.org, this is <laughs> hardly a biased source, <laughs> the rejection of Peter as the writer of Second Peter is by far the most common opinion today. In fact, the view of the pseudonymity of the epistle is almost universal. Bruce Metzger, who's a conservative New Testament scholar, writes, Although the author of this letter calls himself Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, and makes reference to his being present at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, several features of its style and contents have led nearly all modern scholars to regard it as the work of an unknown author in the early 2nd century who wrote in Peter's name. Kirk never mentions any of this. He just, he just assumes that Second Peter was written by Peter. Who would do that, though? That sounds crazy. No one. They can't lie, Matt. They're Christians. That's right. The oh. scripture he cites is from Acts. Uh, it's not an eyewitness source, even if it was written by Luke, as Kirk thinks. Uh, remember, Luke was a native of Antioch, which is located in modern-day Turkey. He became an apostle after uh, of Paul after hearing him. Never knew Jesus personally. So, good job, Kirk, on that one. Well done. 
Uh, next, he gives a common argument frequently heard from Christians about why we can trust the documents in the New Testament. He quotes F.F. F. Bruce, and his qualifications are listed as, quote, of the University of Manchester. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Apparently he could just be some dude sitting at the University of Manchester. It sounds uh, like the University of Phoenix. It's a good <laughs> online school. <laughs> And it can have been by no means so easy, as some writers seem to think, to invent words and deeds of Jesus in those early years, when so many of his disciples were about, who could remember what had and had not happened. <laughs> That's right. They put the smack down on him. Oh, man. So apparently there are apostles and disciples of Jesus everywhere, <laughs> in all climes, in all places where Jesus' stories are being told, right? That's right. They wander about. They protect, you know, the 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 sovereignty. The what's the word I'm looking for? The integrity. Uh, integrity of the Jesus traditions. That's right. You know, um, Christianity in the earlier spread um, from person to person. Essentially, the the best example we probably have is Paul, uh, who set up like a shop tanning leathers or something. And he'd uh, proselytize Christianity as the pagans would come in and trade goods with him. Um, so he, when he got enough people, he'd set up a church, and then he'd close up shop and move on to another city. For, from then on, proselytizing just happened from people in the church uh, to other people, their family, their friends, their uh, work associates, uh, and they'd just pass along stories as they remembered them. Uh, well, so, you know, it's like this big game of telephone. Is F.F. Bruce of, of the University of Manchester actually positing that an eyewitness disciple of Jesus was around everywhere? Some early Christian got a detail wrong. <laughs> you know, hey Julius, did you hear the one about Jesus uh, turning water into beer? And some dude, some Christian eyewitness of Jesus would pop his head in the window. Excuse me, uh, it was actually wine. <laughs> But uh, Bruce of the University of Manchester is not finished, Matt. So, he goes on. And it was not only friendly eyewitnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. There were others less well-disposed who were also conversant with the main facts of the ministry and death of Jesus. The disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies, not to speak of willful manipulation of the facts, which would at once be exposed by those who would only be too glad to do so. <laughs> had there been... Any tendency to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible presence of hostile eyewitnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. So, again. That's right. Bronze Age facts checkers. You can't get away from them. <laughs> this presupposes that witnesses of these events in, in Jerusalem were uh, fucking stalking the disciples of Jesus everywhere they <laughs> went. Just waiting, hoping for some possible slip-up so that they could correct them. <laughs> Oh, my God. If this were true, witnesses of the events of Jesus' life would be spread everywhere. So why don't we have any of their writings, right? Well, why isn't Jesus mentioned by pagan or Jewish authors until the second century? Um, they got the smackdown? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he closes with a, quote, spectacular archaeological discovery, uh, an inscription on a stone slab found at Caesarea Maritima, which reads, Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. So that was a spectacular, spe spectacular discovery. Done. I, I guess it. <laughs> I guess it verified uh, Pontius Pilate's existence. Uh, but uh, I want you to keep in mind that inscription when Kirk talks about Tacitus in the next chapter. 
Okay. I'll try to remember that. All right, Matt, that brings us to the end of the chapter. Um, instead of going on to the next chapter, let's spend a little time on uh, fanfiction.net, uh, Kirk Hastings' page. Which Excellent. Let's do that. Um, Kirk Hastings has written a number of fan uh, fiction stories, uh, one of which uh, I was surprised to see. It answers uh, the thorny problem that scientists and philosophers have been wrangling over for uh, at least almost three decades now, Matt. Three decades? The question is, what would have happened if the TV series Hardcastle and McCormick had gone into a fourth season on ABC TV? <laughs> here, here is the answer. It's those thrilling days of yesteryear. I have been wondering that myself. Has it, everybody? The uh, story I want to go into, though, is uh, Journey Back into Time. This is number three in a series, the time machine from the TV episode through the time barrier, makes a reappearance, this time sending Superman and Sergeant Helen J. O'Hara back to the days of the Roman Empire. Uh, also, by the way, just for anybody who doesn't know, Hard Custom McCormick, that's a series from 1983. <laughs> <laughs> it's about a retired judge and his last defendant. They follow up on cases that were dismissed due to technicalities, and they brutally murder them. Matt is one of the true tragedies of our time that that was canceled before... Yeah. fourth season. Oh, man. Fortunately, Kirk takes that up. If you want to read that, it's at his fan fiction page. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Clark Kent was sitting at his desk at his office at the Daily Planet typing an article when his super-sensitive ears suddenly picked up an odd sound. That's why you can't rub them. It's like a dog's ears. But <laughs> <laughs> It was a, a burglar alarm. Apparently inside a bank, there are... Uh, two thieves whose faces were covered by handkerchiefs. Uh, Come on, Jack, let's go! One of the handkerchiefed burglars yelled. <laughs> you forgot to mention that when he heard that, the alarm, immediately he began to loosen his tie and yank his coats off. Like right there in the office of the Daily Planet. <laughs> Which, as you know, only employs Clark Kent. In <laughs> Everyone's looking at him. <laughs> Did he just jump out the fucking window? What? <laughs> Kirk really loves the Superman series. This is based on the Superman series of the 50s. So uh, Superman arrives at the bank. Uh, they shoot a bunch of bullets at him. It bounces off his chest, unfortunately hitting an innocent bystander and killing her. Oh, man, that's horrible. He took one down with a quick karate chop. <laughs> I forgot that piece of action. That quick is... Um... <laughs> karate chop uh, across the back of the neck. What is his home planet called? Krypton. Krypton Doe, I believe. <laughs> oh my god, a quick karate chop to the back of the neck. That's paralyzing the burglar for the rest of his life. Uh, this puts uh, poor Clark Kent into a deep funk. He, he cannot grapple with the fact that he is inadvertently killed an innocent human being. So, it, it says that uh, aided by his the help of his photographic memory... <laughs> He set some controls of this time machine. Apparently, I don't know, there's a previous episode of the freaking time machine. <clears throat> he sets the controls of the time machine and uh, gets sent back in, into Roman times, apparently. Did he just set it randomly or did he do it on purpose? Oh, he said, if he could set the machine to send him back 24 hours to the past, then he could go back to before the bank robbery took place and make sure that the teller would not be killed. So he must have fucked up because he got sent back to Roman times. I guess so. And he pulled Sergeant O'Hara 
with him. So, long story short, they end up in a uh, in the Roman Colosseum with a bunch of Christians <laughs> who are being <laughs> sent to the lions. <laughs> but apparently, uh, uh, Superman knows Latin. He does know Latin. Casually, he speaks it, Chuck. Yeah, he asked what the program of the day was, apparently. Kidagis progressio pro die, Superman said. <laughs> of course. In casual Latin. Ancient Latin. Uh, so, let's see here. They need to get some more Corobium X for their time machine, is the issue. Well, she gets a, she gets arrested by a Roman because he um, unchivalrously makes an advance upon her, and she repudiates that advance, being the virtuous uh, 1950s uh, upstanding female she is. And so she gets arrested. That fool. Women! Always causing trouble. Women are always... They're like... In the 1950s Superman, I think the women were uh, there solely for the purpose of uh, Superman to rescue. They, right. they got into trouble, they got kidnapped, and then Superman to rescue them. And occasionally he'd slap them. They served no other function. So he finds a Corborium X and uh, puts it in its hiding place, but now he's got to find uh, Sergeant O'Hara. She is in a uh, Coliseum, and the man, in answer to Superman's question... Who Superman casually asked him in ancient Latin what the program for the day was. The man told him that a group of Christians had been arrested for treason against the state and they would be executed today in the arena. And there was much rejoicing. (laughs) Superman (laughs) straightened up again. A look of great consternation came across his face. What should he do? He was duty-bound not to do anything that might change history. Of course, he's here. In the past, (laughs) specifically to change fucking history so he doesn't kill that woman. That could have disastrous consequences for his own time. Yet, on the other hand, how could he stand by and allow a group of innocent people to be slaughtered right in front of him for a non-existent crime? Well, that that crime was actually existent. He actually did commit treason against the state because they refused to swear against the genius of the emperor and worship the state gods. That's treason. It sounds like a thorny moral dilemma he's going to have to wrestle with himself. <laughs> Out. <laughs> he, see, he spots uh, O'Hara and a bunch of other Christians uh, being led into the arena. So he says he needed no further prodding to make up his mind. Two blazes with history, he thought. <laughs> <laughs> he had to do what was right, and he had to do it now. So he sprinted the short distance down to the aisle and into the wall of the arena. Uh, he you know, climbed just... Up just because you think two blazes with history, it's, it's thought is the same as deed. You're still swearing. God knows what you did. <laughs> the Superman hops into the arena, and an indignant shout went up from the crowd at this unscheduled intruder. <laughs> Superman ignored them. <laughs> they don't. The crowd, the Roman crowd, did not appreciate anything that's not on the schedule. What is, what's an indignant shout like? <laughs> the, <laughs> this is a flagrant violation of Roman custom. Superman ignored them and strode over to the group of Christians. O'Hara, a look of relief and happiness on her face, came over to meet him. She embraced him as they met. It's all right, Superman whispered in her ear. I won't let them hurt you. Any of you. And they said, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about because you're no longer speaking casually in ancient Latin. Right. He suddenly grabbed her and pushed her behind him. He turned to face the lions that were slowly creeping toward the group. One of the lions, either bolder or hungrier than the rest, broke from the pack and charged him. Matt, this action I have never I've never seen such action. 
Yeah, what do you do? Not since the abominable snowman charged Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer <laughs> have I been in the presence of such fierce action. Superman met the charge head-on. As the lion came up to him, it reared up on its hind feet and pawed at the man of steel in an attempt to tear his head off. One of the Christians screamed, What did the other man... <laughs> Superman <laughs> told the lion shut up. Shut up. and grabbed the lion around its torso. The lion savagely rent the toga and tunic that Superman was wearing, but Superman paid no attention. Superman's dick is fully on display now. He's totally naked. He threw the lion heavily to the ground, which momentarily stunned it. My God, are those adverbs? Uh, <laughs> Kirk is, is very impressed with adverbs. After a moment, it got up, shook its head, and started to stagger away. A second lion charged. It grabbed Superman with its razor-sharp claws, but they had no effect on the man of tomorrow. With a mighty back swipe of his hand, Superman knocked the big lion backwards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good lord. Uh, oh. When it got up again, it looked unsure as to what to do. It had not expected its puny human prey to fight back so powerfully. It was like, what the fuck? It was... <laughs> <laughs> what, what do I do ancient... now? What the ancient Latin fuck? <laughs> By now, the toga and tunic that Superman wore was in shreds. A gasp, an indignant gasp arose from the crowd. <laughs> so that it wouldn't impede his movement, he tore the rest of it off and threw the remnants to the ground, standing fully revealed in his Superman costume. Which is completely unharmed. <laughs> Parenthetically, which was completely unharmed. <laughs> the crowd, the Coliseum crowd suddenly grew quiet, completely stunned by what they were seeing. Superman faced the other lines. He inhaled mightily, filling his powerful chest with air. This is getting gay. Sorry. <laughs> this is homoerotic a little bit. He's blowing lions. He blew it chest. out at the lions with the force of a hurricane. Lions tumbled helplessly across the arena, a cloud of dust and sand accompanying them. Slowly they got up and shook off themselves. And they, they are now thoroughly cowed, Matt, and started to slink back toward their enclosure. Well, I would be if somebody blew me with a hurricane. <laughs> From his mighty chest. That's right. His mighty, unharmed, costume chest. Now, the, since the lions were ineffective, now they send uh, a centurion. Um, and he, he orders a contingent of six soldiers who is standing along the inner side of the arena uh, to go and kill the costume stranger. One by one, the soldiers, somewhat reluctantly, <laughs> over the wall and lowered themselves onto the arena surface. Six should be enough. <laughs> they drew their short swords and headed slowly towards Superman. They will kill us! One of the young girls in the group of Christians screamed. In English. <laughs> <laughs> no, they won't, Superman reassured them. I promise you they won't. The soldiers approached the man of steel. He stepped forward from the Christians and defiantly put his fists on his hips. As a group, the soldiers struck him with their swords. All of them broke against his skin, leaving the we soldiers weaponless. Okay, now I know his skin is, like, you know, powerful and impervious and whatever, yes. but that's that's a pretty damn good swing, you gotta admit, if you're, if you're breaking your sword. That's true. Well, there's some strong Roman soldiers. That's right. That's, that's then good. Superman waded into them. Within <laughs> moments, all of them were lying unconscious on the arena sand. So six Roman soldiers, he spends, like, ten words on them. And uh, the lions get like eight paragraphs. Right. 
Superman then walked to the procurator's box. He stepped in front of it, and his powerful voice rang out throughout the arena. In English. Citizens of Rome, listen to me. And they're all going, the fuck? <laughs> what? What? I am what? here to protect these people. They have done you no harm, and they are innocent of any wrongdoing. You are not to harm them. Hear my words. If anyone should try to persecute these people again, I will surely return and punish them as they deserve. His speech finished, Superman turned and walked back to O'Hara and the Christians. You are now free to go your way, he said to the group in Latin. I have made it possible for you to leave this place. Quickly, go somewhere where you'll be safe. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to worry about it anymore. Just Don't, don't worry about the subsequent uh, persecutions. You, you'll be fine. <laughs> Uh, before anyone could respond, he scooped O'Hara up in his arms, ran a few steps, then leaped into the air with her soaring out of the arena. Every head what? in the Colosseum craned upward, watching in awe as the Man of Steel disappeared into the cloudless sky. Okay, so now I'm thinking later on in history when Jesus comes along, he won't be taken serious. They'll just be like, well, can you fly? <laughs> I saw man fly. Let's see if I... Uh, he has a short paragraph explaining this problem away, Matt. Oh. Do you think anything we did here will change history? O'Hara asked. I doubt it, Superman responded. This is an obscure province, and I think I, to use a old expression, put the fear of God into these people. <laughs> I don't think what they saw will go beyond this town. If it does, I don't think it will be believed. Because no one believes such stupid stories about people walking on water or rising from the dead. Such stories, they will not be believed. Because every fucking head in the Colosseum turned and saw him ascend into heaven. Right. That will not end up in any writings. <laughs> there will be no uh, statues to Superman. No idols. Right. You know, Christianity won't be replaced with Superman-anity when he returns. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That, that's probably my... <laughs> Clark Kentianity? Uh, that, that was probably my favorite Superman story. He goes back and, you know, uh, the girl's not dead anymore, and et cetera, et cetera. So he changes fucking history twice in this one story uh, when he has a duty not to. Uh, but, you know, no problem. Everything's consistent. It's a good story. I give it a 7 out of 8. <laughs> well, I, give, oh. <laughs> I, I give this story I give this story 5 stars, but I have to admit that I am a personal friend of the author. Oh, that's right. Alright, Matt, should that wind it up? We'll probably do another story next time when we cover The Case for Christ, uh, which is part 11. And if we get to it, my God, uh, we'll do part 12, which is probably my favorite chapter, What About Non-Biblical Religions? Yes, yes, let's do that. Because what about those? I've been wondering. Well, what about them? Uh, we'll find out next week.